Hello, I'm Mary Nanyan, RSA's current Medical Student Council Chair. I'm excited to introduce this new series from RSA called Empower, a social emergency medicine series where humanity meets medicine. For our first episode, we'll be covering an introduction to social EM, what it is, and why you should know about it. And I'm Anantha Singaraja, PGY1, and your current RSA Secretary-Treasurer. I'm very excited to introduce social EM expert, Dr. Victor Cisneros, who is actually one of my attending physicians at Eisenhower Health here in Southern California. He is the GME Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Eisenhower. He completed a fellowship in population health and social emergency medicine and has given lectures on social EM all around the world. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be part of the first episode of your social EM podcast. I'm excited to be part of this. So Dr. Cisneros, social EM seems to be this emerging important topic that's coming across in our training and, you know, articles I'm seeing online. So can you explain to our listeners what it is? Yeah, no, definitely. It's definitely not a new concept. You know, it's something that's been used in the outpatient world, pediatric world, um, you know, for years now. But in, in emergency medicine, it's a branch that uses, you know, social forces that interplay and act together with the emergency care system to affect healthcare individuals and communities to like minimize health disparity. And that is in different avenues, like, for example, research, direct service, advocacy, anything that would aim in addressing the social determinants of health. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring up this idea of social de- determinants of health, which was such a major point of discussion when I was an undergrad. And, and as a public health major, it was a huge thing we talked about. And for those listening, social determinants of health are the non-medical, economic, and social factors that influence health outcomes. It's essentially the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, essentially where they exist, as well as the wider set of systems that really shape daily life. These determinants play a major role in people's health, quality of life, and medical outcomes, and often contribute to the health disparities and inequities we see across demographics today. So a prime example that's often discussed is the idea of food deserts, where they're defined as urban areas where it's difficult to buy fresh food. And it kind of ends up being this consequence type of situation where if you live in an area that is a food desert, you probably don't have good nutrition. And then subsequently, you're at an increased risk of conditions like heart disease, diabetes, and obesity, and even contribute to the lower life expectancies we see when compared to people who do have access to healthy food. You know, we face this every day as emergency physician practitioners. Obviously, we've always been trained to address the life-threatening emergencies. But as we all know, you know, um, there's a lot of forces that come into play with our patient health care. An example would be, you know, uh, Kevin and, and, and Maria, you know, they come into the emergency department with either maybe some mild hypertension or diabetes or maybe a skin infection. You kind of treat them, you send them home, but you don't really know where they're going. You don't really know much about them. And then a couple of weeks later, they come back. And now Maria is in full on decay. And, uh, you know, Kevin is a full on sepsis because of a skin infection that turned into this you know, septic leg and you ask yourself, why didn't you take your medications? And they don't really tell you why, you know, maybe they couldn't afford it or anything like that, but you don't know. And they'd be labeled as non-compliant. And many of our patients, I think, you know, are labeled non-compliant inappropriately when the underlying cause maybe is the social determinants of, of health, which is in maybe Kevin's case, he's like a vet and he is living in the streets and he's homeless. So obviously he's not going to be able to afford his medication and he's probably getting a skin infection from living in the streets and not having good hygiene. You know, maybe Maria is living paycheck to paycheck and can't afford her diabetes medication because it's the difference between her pain, her rent, or maybe bringing food in the table for her children. Maybe she's a single mom, she's an immigrant. 
she doesn't have uh, the resources to pay for her medication. So she's going to choose like any other mother to feed your kids. So I think one of the few things that we can start by is having a conversation with our patients and kind of learning a little bit where, where, where they're coming from and the reasons why they're potentially not quote unquote, you know, being compliant, you know? So I see these problems all the time and I'm been only been a resident for about six months now. Um, at Eisenhower, we're really lucky to have this strong social work support as well as case management to kind of help our patients with their medication needs, um, housing, food opportunities. Um, once we find out about these needs, how do we address these issues in the ED? I think, you know, the biggest thing is understanding and acknowledging that the social factors, like I said, are very important. We know that healthcare outcomes, 80% of healthcare outcomes is based on quality and length of life are determined by these social determinants of health, health behaviors, social economical factors and environment. But it can be very tasking to say, hey, how can I address this in a five, 10, 15 minute visit, you know, in the emergency department. And I think it's working as a team. And not only asking a couple questions, you know, a little bit more and not necessarily be very judgmental, but when we flag these patients, potentially working with our social workers and being these healthcare advocates that I, arguably we are, you know, when people marginalize, marginalize these patients in the community, we're always open. We're open 365 days, 24 hours a day. And we're always, our doors are open to see every individual from the rich lady from Beverly Hills or the homeless guy under the bridge. And so I think it's important to be able to identify this either with, you know, risk stratification tools or things that your hospital might have in place, or just potentially asking the appropriate questions like, Hey, do you have enough food to eat? Do you have enough, um, you know, um, uh, money to, to afford your medication? And these are, you know, two questions that took 30 seconds that I could be doing while I'm auscultating their lungs or potentially pressing on their belly. And I'm not saying you're going to save them by, you know, it's your task as a, as an emergency physician to provide the resources, but at least it flags them and you could put a social work consult or advocate for them and say, Hey, maybe we should dig a little deeper with social work and try to get you help. And this could be potentially even admitting them for in certain places for, for a social admin or placement you know, or resources. Yeah, I think it's really important for ER physicians to really think about the power they have to impact small changes to really be able to link their patients with the resources that Anantha had described that are so, you know, available at Eisenhower. I think if you're really trying to be an effective physician, you have to meet the patient where they are and, and kind of create a plan that is feasible and actually doable for them. And oftentimes, I think that kind of comes with those questions you had mentioned, Dr. Cisneros, about, you know, identifying them as the first step to really being able to enact these types of uh, changes and efforts. So in that type of uh, vein of questioning, how do you propose students and physicians get involved in these efforts? Percent. I mean, I feel like, you know, you could ask a couple questions just targeting. It takes 30 seconds, not much. And there are hospitals. And I think if you are very interested and passionate, as I'm doing with food insecurity, I've implemented certain screening questions in the intake that I don't even have to do anything. The nurses are at triage. These questions are standardized that identify food insecurity and it flags an automatic process to the social worker. It takes the healthcare provider and it potentially flags me too. And I can have a teachable moment or open discussion with a patient if I think it's pertinent to the healthcare. But at least we have, you could be an advocate, not just talking to your patients, but also working with administration, social work, and your team members to put in place within your system things that could potentially flag or, you know, put people at risk 
so they can provide the adequate resources or maybe adequate referrals in the community. The first step is obviously listening to podcasts like this. You know, it's always an amazing thing that you guys are doing and obviously disseminating the information. And, you know, believe it or not, a lot of uh, healthcare providers don't understand that the 20% of access and, and quality of care is only 20% of what mitigates the healthcare outcomes. And at the end of the day, that's what we're, as physicians, that's what we want to do. We want to change these healthcare outcomes. So if our access and quality is only changing 20%, we can't turn a blind eye. And we have to start thinking about these social determinants of health when it becomes such an important factor. And we know that many people don't have access because they're uninsured and depending on where you work, they, we are, maybe they're primary care doctors, we are their healthcare advocates. So working with our consultants, working with the hospitalist and potentially, you know, getting involved with organizations like AEM and, you know, social impact and a lot of these um, uh, what we call social EM organizations have been founded and have a lot of resources. And honestly, I think learning the lay of the land around your hospital system and your community resources, because I think that's the key, because some people, not, it's not just identifying the patients, but it's like, now what? How are we going to make a change? Because it could be potentially not that difficult to identify patients. There's a lot of uh, screening tools out there. There's a lot of questions that have been validated. But then what? What do we do with the person that screens positive for food insecurity in my case? How do I connect them to the community so that we can minimize this? You know, and I think that my job is as a public health practitioner, you know, and not just a provider, is learning the lay of the land, learning what my community partners are doing and how I can work closer to them. In my, in my community, for example, you know, I'm working with uh, one of our congressmen who's Dr. Raul Reese. He's actually an emergency physician. We're working on kind of getting some funding or community partners like uh, food finders and um, food banks across the, the community in the Coachella Valley where we're screening for food insecurity and we're you know, connecting these patients to the right resources. Many times the patients are not even aware that we have these resources in the community. So not only, you know, um, are we screening, uh, you know, being these public health practitioners, but we're also being a patient advocate, which is, I think is very important. So Dr. Cisneros, as students and residents who are passionate about providing more for their patients, how do we go about working with our attending physicians, especially those attendings who may have more of an antiquated view of the ED and believing that they need to focus on emergent care within our wheelhouse, even if we're capable of doing more things for other people? How do we get around that pushback at our level of training? No, I agree. And I think, you know, it's a two, the way I see it is two theories. One, I, in my opinion, there's two ways. If you're an academic hospital and you're serving the community and you are the safety net, I think we do. And, and there's people that are doing this research, people that are passionate, public health practitioner. It is kind of our responsibility. We are the safety net of, of our community many times. Now, if you're at a for-profit private hospital in the emergency department, yes, arguably you're like, this might not be why I went into emergency medicine, I just want to crunch into my shift, you know, and see patients. But I would also argue with those people, not argue, but I would always, I would, I guess I would highlight that, you know, at the end of the day, you want to do what's best for your patients. And it's not that the burden falls on the emergency practitioner, you know, but it's, again, like you mentioned, it is working with the team members 
and you as the quarterback or the leader of the group, or maybe the system of the emergency department, the medical director, identifying those areas where we can improve. And at the end of the day, we're trying to do what's best for our patients. So if we can maybe bring social workers that are trained in this area, maybe legal partnerships that we can form to help our undocumented patients or our VA patients that might not be aware that they qualify for VA health, you know, and we see them repeatedly in the emergency department, we potentially can minimize revisits. We can minimize unnecessary admissions. We could potentially have a lot of cost-saving dollars. And there is some evidence for, you know, those emergency practitioners that are in the community or in a for-profit system that, hey, like this is potentially there's some cost savings at the end. You know, for practitioners that are in a safety net hospital or an academic, you know, university hospital, I feel like it's part of our responsibility of being academic physicians to be able to think outside the box and provide the best care for these underserved patient populations. So yeah, I think it's a two-way approach. And, you know, obviously it's my opinion, some people might disagree. Yeah, and I do think the answer is different for each community. You know, some communities already have pharmacies that have like that have like food pharmacies in certain stores um, that you can direct patients to who are food insecure, but then other communities don't have that resource. So then you have to kind of figure out what what is available in the community. And then I think that's why, you know, speaking to one of your prior points about really understanding your local community and like what options there are there. Cause each each you know, city, each city is different, each state is different. Yes. And, you know, prior to COVID, you know, which we're all very familiar with, unfortunately, you know, it's impacted the emergency department arguably the most and ICUs, you know, a lot of outpatient care was, you know, obviously non-existent for a point because people were in the house, but arguably COVID unveiled the veil of housing being part of healthcare. You know, prior to COVID, people, some people would say, well, housing is not a problem of the emergency department, is not a hospital issue. Some people would say, hey, maybe, you know, homelessness is not a social determinant of the health, right? We, as obviously public health providers, we know that that's not the case and we know it's a real issue, but we saw that COVID brought up a huge issue with our COVID patients. Now they were homeless. We couldn't have them just running around COVID positive. And now, you know, we had to find creative ways in one, some ways or other to, to potentially be discharging them safely because we couldn't send them to SNFs all at the same place. Or we had to put some of these homeless patient populations in maybe hotels. And so now, you know, we have a pandemic and we realize that housing and homelessness is actually healthcare. You know, when we all knew this was an issue. So I think, you know, seeing this forward, we can start looking at maybe there's other areas as hopefully maybe I'm sure you guys will touch in your future podcasts, you know, that are equally as important and equally impact patients' health, you know, such as limited English proficiency patients, transgender patients, LGBTQ community, you know, where I work, we have a huge HIV patient population. And these are a lot of, um, of other aspects of the social determinants of health or even incarcerated patients, you know, incarcerated health. And, um, but it's a, there's a plethora to kind uh, of, of topics. Dr. Cisneros, you had mentioned that in order to 
advance the field of social EM, we need leaders. And so what opportunities are there for residents to become more involved with social EM? What should medical students look for when they're interviewing with potential residency programs? I think asking questions on what the residency program in terms of medical students, what they have to offer, what they're currently doing. If you're a resident, you know, if you obviously have, um, if, if your residency program has a fellowship track in terms of social EM, that's a good opportunity. If that's what you're interested, maybe talking to some, some of those mentors that are part of that uh, fellowship. And if they don't have a fellowship, maybe creating one, you could be one of the pioneers and maybe creating an elective, you know, obviously, um, you know, you can create your own uh, fellowship and uh, be a pioneer within your own program. And these are kind of issues that we need to educate not just our attendings, but our fellow colleagues and potentially paving the road for future leaders like yourself. The umbrella of social EM is pretty broad reaching. So what are other topics that one might not realize are included under social EM? Yeah, it's like you said, it's pretty broad. And under that umbrella, you know, there's a lot of topics like food insecurity, human trafficking, gender, disability, um, working with limited English proficiency patients, poverty, uh, mental health, and um, even like street medicine. Um, so there's so many topics that you can not only address, but even subspecialize if you decide to kind of follow some of these tracks. You know, my niche has been food insecurity. I started doing this when I was a medical student, continued as a resident, and now I'm trying to bring some of these area to the Coachella Valley where I'm currently a, an attending physician. And so there's a need. And so I think focusing within your niche and your interest, I think it's very important, you know, obviously, because it can be pretty broad and you'll see that a lot of public health practitioners, socially and practitioners will have a certain area or niche. They might be aware of all the other subtopics, but, you know, there's definitely a focus. Thank you so much, Dr. Cisneros, for joining us today to introduce this very important topic in EM and kicking off our Social EM series. This concludes our first episode on the RSA podcast Social EM series. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you again, Dr. Cisneros, for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please join us for our next episode where we'll discuss other cool topics in Social EM. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.